0: The old pilot's plain tales Après moi, le déluge This
1: is London The Air Ministry have just issued the following communicate In the early hours of this morning A force of Lancasters of Bomber Command Led by Wing Commander G.P. Gibson, DSO, DFC Attacked with mines, the dams of the Myrna and Sauber reservoirs.
0: Of the water it was only a few days ago that we passed the anniversary of the death of Wing Commander Guy Penrose Gibson, VC, DSO and Bar, DFC and Bar. He rightly earned his place in history as the leader of the famous Dambusters raid on the Ruhr Dams during the Second World War. But before I tackle that raid and Barnes-Wallace's part, In that amazing story, in what will be a trilogy of tales, I want to talk about the man who led 617 Squadron that night. Our story starts in Simla, India, when on the 12th of August 1918, Guy was born. Son to Lenora and Alexander Gibson. Guy's father was working in the Imperial Indian Forestry Service, but sadly when Guy was six his parents separated and he went with his mother to England to start his schooling. Part of his education was at St Edward's School, Oxford, the same school as Douglas Bader, who would later serve with great distinction as a fighter pilot who overcame the earlier disability of losing both of his legs in a flying accident. Gibson's childhood didn't go without problems as his mother struggled with alcoholism marked with erratic and sometimes violent behaviour towards her children. Guy ended up staying in the school's lodgings and was looked after by his aunt. He was only an average student but he had a strong desire to follow in the footsteps of his childhood hero, Albert Ball V.C. Bowl was a First World War fighter pilot who, before he was killed, led the flying aces with 44 downed enemy aircraft. Guy followed his dream by writing to Vickers about becoming a test pilot with them. The wonderful Mutt Summers, Vickers' chief test pilot, who got his nickname from his habit of peeing on the tail wheel of his aircraft for good luck before setting off on a test flight, By coincidence, Summers would feature in Guy Gibson's short life. Not only would he test fly the Spitfire and Hurricane, but he would fly the test aircraft for the experimental bouncing bombs for his close friend Barnes-Wallace. Summers wrote back to Guy Gibson, advising him first to join the RAF. The young man duly applied, but was rejected by the medical board as his legs were considered too short, I'm not sure how he encouraged his legs to grow, but his next application was successful. He started his RAF career in 1936 and was awarded his wings at RAF Netherraven the next year. He went on to advanced training, opting for bombers, and completed that course with an average assessment. However, it was noted that he had something of a character flaw, owing to his rude and condescending behaviour towards some junior ranks and ground crews in particular. This wasn't the only time such an attitude would be remarked upon, but he really didn't have long to mature before he was thrown into a war where such behaviour would be more easily forgiven. Training over, Guy Gibson was initially posted to RAF Turnhouse, near Edinburgh, to fly Hawker Hind biplanes. The following year, the squadron was moved to RAF Lucas, my old base, and they converted to the Handley Page Hamden, a twin-engined medium bomber that would be retired in 1942 when more capable aircraft became available. Again, Gibson wouldn't cover himself in glory when he was found negligent by a court of inquiry after a taxiing accident. When war finally broke out in 1939, Guy was called back from leave to Aria Scampton in Lincolnshire to take part in an attack on the German fleet. The mission was aborted due to bad weather, and the long winter of the phony war continued, but then Guy was sent on a mission with coastal command to attack a German U-boat. Unfortunately, one aircraft dropped its bombs on a British Navy submarine instead, which resulted in letters of censure to fly in all directions. 1940 saw real action and was one of the most intense operational period of Gibson's career. He completed 34 operations in five months and was earning himself a reputation for fearlessness particularly when flying in marginal weather. His missions varied from dropping mines in enemy harbours to attacking capital ships, as well as attacks on ground-based targets. In 1940 he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for showing courage and devotion to duty. After some leave and a short period working at an operational conversion unit, training other pilots, he was hand-picked to transfer to night fighters. He was posted to become a flight commander on 29 Squadron at RAF Digby, flying Bristol Blenheims and then Bowfighters. The squadron wasn't doing well and considered so ill-disciplined that it was nearly disbanded. What's more, Gibson attracted some hostility as a bomber pilot who was posted in to help fix the squadron. His score of kills slowly rose and before long he was awarded a bar to his DFC. In an interview he described an attack.
1: He is now two miles ahead of you, still flying north. I don't think he knows you're behind. So you cock your guns, which means set them ready for firing, your four cannons and your six machine guns, and you snuggle up, you turn on your ring sight, put your straps on, see that your parachute is quite ready that bail out, shouldn't even go wrong, and wait. And they say, he's a mile and a half ahead, you'll be seeing him any moment now. I throttle back to 2.35, and then suddenly they'll say, change course to due north, he's straight ahead of you now, a mile ahead, half a mile, look out for him now, he's about 300 feet above you. And you get closer, and then suddenly you see a smudge on the windscreen. And when you look closer and you open your eyes more, it's a Hun. Great Heinkel, fat Heinkel, slipping along the air at about 220, full of bomb loads for London. Oh. And uh, you get closer and closer, you get dropped lower and lower instantly to get yourself against the dark background down below. Then when you're about 50 yards away from him, you lift your nose and just press the button. There's a blinding flash, an explosion, things hit your wings, and then there's a spout of flame which falls quickly towards the earth, and down goes one more German night raider.
0: By now he was acting squadron commander, but he was finding the relative safety and boredom of the mission's niggling, and he wanted a change. It came with a promotion to wing commander when he was posted to take command of a bomber squadron at RAF Coningsby, flying the Avro Manchester, the twin engine forerunner of the famed Lancaster. The squadron did well, and before long was converted to the beloved 4 engine Lancaster bomber. As a commander, Gibson's main concern was to be seen to share the risk. He continued to show unremitting aggression with a selectivity towards harder targets rather than easier ones. What's more, he expected the same determination from everyone on the squadron and dealt severely with anyone he considered to be malingering. He trained his new crews well, but acquired a reputation for not accepting any interference in how he ran the squadron. He could be high-handed with the ground crews, and some of the air crew disliked him for his strict disciplinarian attitude. However, he was also acknowledged as a true leader. After a successful tour, during which he attacked many significant targets, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, and later a bar to the medal. His citation read, in part, This officer has completed many sorties, including a daylight raid on Danzig and an attack on Guinea. In the recent attack at Le Crosseau, Wing Commander Gibson bombed a machine gun, the transformer station, nearby from 500 feet. He's a most skillful and courageous leader whose keenness has set a most inspiring example. The BBC reporter Richard Dimbleby reported from Gibson's aircraft on a raid over Germany.
2: Now we are coming in to the target. We're approaching Keys. I've just heard the voice of the master bomber in my headphones ordering us to the extremely low height from which we're going to bomb. Not... Very welcome news, perhaps, for us. And we're on our way down to that... <coughs> we're on our way down to that height now. Our bombs are going. The flak is bursting Cassandra, us. it. We're going over the top now. Flares and fire. I don't know how we can stand this. It's absolutely... It's absolutely... We're shaking with the flak. Crew, shaking and... I see the they fire. How steady and calm the crew and the skippers are keeping on their course. Now we are also being as Our bombs are, and they are bursting there now. Flash, 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 crash. I'm sorry. I tried to be, I tried to be contained and steady on this commentary, but it's more than I can do. It's a staggering sight that we can see in the sky.
0: With a growing reputation, it was not surprising that. When he was expecting to go on well-deserved leave, he received a call from his air officer commanding asking him to form a special squadron to fly, and I quote, one last trip. He was given a free hand to select his own crews from amongst other squadrons, but they had to be experienced and have completed, or nearly so, two tours of operations. So it was that on the 21st of March 1943 he stood on the floor of a hangar at R.A.S. Scampton to meet the personnel who he had chosen to form Squadron X. The squadron formed under great secrecy for a specific attack that wasn't revealed to the crews. They trained at low flying for weeks, particularly over the water of some reservoirs such as the Aberton and the Derwent, and practise their navigational skills, after over a thousand flying hours, they were declared ready. in the meantime, their aircraft had been modified to carry a special weapon that would be used against the dams of the Mo, Ada, and Saar in the Rhine. The attack went ahead on the night of the sixteenth of May nineteen forty three a story I will tell in detail in the near future. Needless to say, the newly formed 617 Squadron took its place in history that night as the Dambusters. Two days later, Gibson held a squadron parade and the unit's personnel were sent on a well-deserved leave. Gibson himself was on leave in Panarthi's home in Cornwall when he received the news from Bomber Harris himself that he had been awarded the Victoria Cross. His response was subdued, as he felt responsible for those he had recruited and who had not returned. He was reported as saying, It all seemed so unfair. He attended an investiture at Buckingham Palace, and Her Majesty the Queen presented Gibson with the VC with a citation, part of which read, This officer served as a night bomber pilot at the beginning of the war and quickly established a reputation as an outstanding operational pilot. In addition to taking the fullest possible share in all normal operations, he made single-handed attacks during his rest nights on such highly defended objectives as the German battleship Tirpitz, then completing in Wilmshaven. When his tour of operational duty was concluded he asked for a further operational posting and went to a night fighter unit instead of being posted for instructional duties. After a short period in a training unit he again volunteered for operational duties and returned to night bombers. Both as an operational pilot and as leader of his squadron he achieved outstandingly successful results and his personal courage knew no bounds. Berlin, Cologne, Danzig, Guinea, Genoa, Le Croiseux, Milan, Nuremberg and Stuttgart were among the targets he attacked by day and night. On the conclusion of his third operational tour, when Commander Gibson pressed strongly to be allowed to remain on operations and he was selected to command a squadron, then forming for special tasks. Under his inspiring leadership, this squadron has now executed one of the most devastating attacks of the war, the breaching of the Mona and Ida dams. Throughout his operational career, prolonged exceptionally at his own request, he has shown leadership, determination and valour of the highest order. Gibson was stood down from operational duties and sent on a tour of Canada and the United States. This was at a time when the first American airmen were coming home, tour expired after 25 operations. During questions at a function in Washington, D.C., one young lady asked, When Commander Gibson, how many operations have you been on over Germany? He replied, 174. His reply was followed by a stunned silence. In an interview, he mentioned the friendship he had encountered with the American forces.
2: Another thing that I wanted to ask about that I'm very keen about, and that is the relationship between the fighting forces of Britain and America. What have you got to say on that? Couldn't be better, John.
1: I, I've been, uh, as you know, over there for a long time. I've been North Africa for a bit. And over there, I've seen these boys that were just great pals. Mm. They wear different uniforms, so do we. Yeah. But uh, we, we speak with slightly different accents. So does a Scotsman. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're just grand guys. They pinch our girls, we pinch their girls. Good. <laughs> they drink our beer, we drink their beer. And uh, we fly together and fight together on the same creed of life and death, which is the biggest bond a man can have.
0: Whilst in the States, he was awarded the United States Commander's Insignia to the Legion of Merit that is given for exceptionally meritorious conduct in the performance of outstanding services and achievements. The award was presented by General Arnold. On his return, he was tasked with writing a book, which was to become Enemy Coast Ahead but despite being distracted by other duties like attending staff college, he was eventually appointed as a staff officer at RAF East Kirkby. In this post, he managed to get some more flying, and eventually he wrangled himself into a major operation as the master bomber, who controls the waves of aircraft attacking. He was flying a Mosquito, an aircraft he was not particularly familiar with, and he didn't have his regular navigator. Things did not go well. The marking aircraft had problems identifying the target, and Gibson's attempts failed when his target indicators wouldn't release. However, he remained calm, directing the bombers to an alternative target until the main one was correctly marked. This was to be his last mission. He failed to return, and his aircraft was found to have crashed at Steenbergen in the Netherlands. Human remains were found at the crash site, and one body had a laundry tag in its sock bearing the name Guy Gibson. Barnes-Wallace wrote of him, he had pushed his luck beyond all limits, and he knew it, but that was the kind of man he was, a man of great courage, inspiration and leadership, a man born for war, but born to fall in war. Sir Arthur Harris said that he was as great a warrior as this island ever bred, and Churchill wrote, I had great admiration for him, the glorious Dambuster. We have lost in this officer one of the most splendid of all our fighting men. His name will not be forgotten. It will forever be enshrined in the most wonderful records of our country. In 1955, one of the greatest wartime movies that was ever made honoured the exploits of 617 Squadron. Gibson was played by Richard Tarn, and the movie was titled The Dambusters*. If you enjoyed this story, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.